Hi there, I'm James Dapache, and this is Coffee and a Case Note. Today, 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 we are going to speak about a dispute between a couple of parties who are unit holders in a unit trust and then shareholders in a company that is the trustee of that unit trust. It's going to sound a bit fiddly, but we're going to work through it. All right. The biggest asset of this unit trust is a significant piece of property that's going to be developed into a five-storey or multi-storey development. So this asset is worth a substantial amount of money and it is owned by the company that purports to be the unit trustee and the beneficiaries or the unit holders and the unit trustee are our two parties we're going to be dealing with today. One of the parties we're going to call something like our applicant and one of the parties we're going to call something like our respondent, right? And our applicant owns about 82 of the units in the unit trust or holds about 82 of the units in the unit trust and the respondent holds the balance and our applicant um, owns about 20% of the shares in the company that is the trustee of the unit trust and the respondent owns the balance of the shares. Broadly speaking, we've got the applicant and the respondent who hold all the rights relating to this trustee or this trust, um, the biggest asset of which is this property that's going to be developed. That makes sense, I hope. How does the unit trustee get the money to buy this property? Well, this is interesting. Um, the purchase price for the property uh, undeveloped is about $20 million. Uh, and the unit trustee um, gets that money, uh, $13 million from our applicant and our respondent, and another $7 million from a bank or, or a significant financial institution. But that $13 million that comes from the applicant and the respondent actually all comes from the respondent, right? And it is made up of about 10 million bucks directly from the respondent and about 3 million bucks that the respondent loans to the applicant that the applicant then loans to the unit trustee, which I hope makes sense. Things march along and there is an agreement between the applicant and the respondent relating to this loan of $3 million. Our respondent demands repayment for the loan and the applicant can't pay and does not pay. And so what the respondent does is turn to the relevant terms of the agreement. And what those terms allow the respondent to do, so the respondent says, is essentially take advantage of a power of attorney and do other things to cause all of our applicants' units in the unit trust to be transferred to the respondent, to allow all of the applicants' shares in the company that is the unit trustee to be transferred to the respondent, and also to go ahead and make finance decisions about the next steps the company is going to take. So what the respondent says is, I asked for my three million bucks plus interest, you didn't pay, so I'll take all your units and I'll take all your shares. And the big part of the litigation, or should I say the substantive proceedings, is our respondent making a claim against the applicant about all that stuff, essentially trying to enforce those rights. Today, we are going to speak about an interlocutory injunction that our applicant seeks. Our applicant has said to the court, can I please get an interlocutory injunction or an immediate stop? And what the applicant wants an immediate stop to is the applicant wants to stop 
a meeting of unit holders that is going to be held soon. The applicant comes to court and says, stop this meeting. And in order to get uh, an interlocutory injunction, what you need to do is convince the court that there's a serious issue to be tried, right, that you've got a strong legal argument, and then you need to convince the court that the balance of convenience favours making the injunction. Okay, tiny bit more background. Um, at the time, or at or around the time, the respondent purported to take all the shares and all the units away from our applicant. Our applicant threw a few caveats on the property. And as you probably know, caveats uh, prevent the owner of land from dealing with it uh, without the consent of the caveator, broadly speaking. So we've got caveats on this land, we've got a big piece, piece of proceedings commenced by our respondent, and we've got a little, well, little, uh, we have a smaller uh, interlocutory injunction application commenced by our applicant. So remember the first thing our applicant has to do is say, hey, I've got a real legal problem here, there's a serious issue to be tried. And the applicant worked through a number of arguments, uh, said, hey, look, there's a real construction issue, which is to say a contract interpretation issue about how the clauses of my $3 million loan agreement work. Um, there's a question about the validity of the share transfer. There's a question about corporate oppression. And what the court says broadly about most of these claims is, look, they are genuine and there are legal arguments there, but they're not especially strong. And some of the claims are characterised as weak claims. So the court says, in relation to serious question to be tried, mm, yeah, okay, there's something there, but not especially strong. And do you remember the second limb of the test, the interlocutory injunction? That is the balance of convenience. And essentially, it is the court considering uh, whether to grant the injunction um, or whether to wait until the end for the final determination of the litigation to uh, deal with the relief that the applicant is seeking. So the court dives into it. So one of the interesting things is the court says that there's no real evidence from the applicant showing that if the relief was granted, which is to say if this meeting was delayed and some additional powers were granted to it to uh, really get into being a part of the development, that they'd actually do that in a genuine way uh, in the best interest of the company. Indeed, there's evidence that the applicant's director uh, is refusing to withdraw these caveats and so it's sort of standing in the way of the development. So the court says, well, there's not a lot of evidence before us, before the court, that it's going to allow us to conclude that the applicant is going to be of much assistance in this development. Another interesting point that is raised by the respondent is, hey, we've got a big uh, loan, a big bit of finance hanging in the wings and it's time sensitive and if these injunctions are granted there's going to be a huge risk that this commercially advantageous finance is going to be put at risk. So don't grant the injunctions, it's not good for the company because we're about to get this juicy finance that's really going to help with the development. And another point that is raised um, that is also against the balance of convenience is that the applicant gives an undertaking as to damages, which essentially says, hey, I'll pay the damages um, that are incurred by the company between the injunction being granted and the final hearing uh, if it turns out that I lose at final hearing, essentially, and again, broadly speaking. And what the court says is, hey, look, thanks for that undertaking, but um, earlier in these proceedings, there was a demand made for you to pay three million bucks. Do you remember? That was the demand the respondent made pursuant to that loan agreement. Uh, you couldn't pay. Uh, and so this undertaking as to damages is not worth all that much. 
And so the court says, look, there may be these serious issues to be tried, but some of them are weak. And the court sort of says, well, look, the balance of convenience probably favours no injunction because of this commercially sensitive uh, and appealing finance, because of your inadequate uh, undertaking as to damages, and because we don't really have much evidence that you're going to do the right thing if we give you what you want. So the court says, no injunction. Another little factor in not granting an injunction that the court uh, briefly mentions is to say, well, it is not determinative, it's not absolutely fundamental, but it's relevant when thinking about the exercise of the court's discretion that what the applicant did was not commence its own proceedings to say, hey, there's this urgent problem I need the court to see, but actually within the respondent's proceedings that the respondent had already kicked off, uh, the applicant did it within those proceedings. So essentially the applicant waited for the respondent to do something before it decided to do something. And so the court found that gently told against the applicant getting the injunction it wanted. I hope that discussion assisted you uh, on sort of an understanding of the issues that uh, arise when we're talking about interlocutory injunctions. And I look forward to joining you again soon for another coffee and another case note. Cheers.